Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is the Intentional Growth Podcast, and this is episode 260. And today's guest name is Steve Moss. And Steve is the founder and president of Executive Springboard, which is a network of current and former C-suite executives who mentor leaders to help them excel in new roles that get clients a 95% retention rate over 18 months for the executives that they end up hiring. Steve was the chief marketing officer of Pillsbury International, Nestle Ice Cream, and Imation, Global brands were a sweet spot, and Steve had some crazy, awesome experience like reversing Smirnoff's declines in Canada and set the brand on a path for six consecutive years of growth. He expanded Goldschlager from its early U.S. success to over 20 countries and four continents. And right in the heart of the Great Recession, Steve started his own consulting agency that worked with clients like Schwann Foods, Lando Lakes, Michael Foods, Blue Diamond Almonds, Cargill, Optum, 3M. And over his career, Steve has seen what is successful and not successful as Companies and brands try to roll out and scale their operations. And one of the biggest components was their executive team. I mean, he has the track record of over 50 of his reports becoming VPs or presidents. So with Executive Springboard, he was able to take what worked in developing leaders and then help other companies make sure that their executives that they're hiring are integrated and have a long-term track record of working at that company and taking that business or brand to the next level. At Executive Springboard, he has recruited over a network of 90 mentors that are paired up with executives that are newly positioned in roles, so that way they have a way to bounce ideas off of others that are in the same corporate structure or same ownership structure, family transitions, private equity backed, or in some sort of growth stage and or dynamics, so that way it's not only the function of the position, but it's all the other things that are going on around that position in the organization and in the growth path of that company. So that way that individual has as much probability of succeeding long-term as well as the owner who can then rest assured that they made the right decision and actually get a return on that investment and then get them closer to their goals. This is a huge deal because if you're running your business and you're going to go pay a huge dollar amount, potentially to a recruiter and for the salary of to then hire a C-suite executive at your company, you want to make sure that you did everything humanly possible to make sure that it works out for the long run. The stakes are so high if you don't get it right. One, your culture can be completely overhauled and disrupted in ways that will take you a long time to rekindle and rebuild. You could have your entire plan set back a year or two because you're trying to march towards a liquidation event at some point or trying to get out of the business and out of your day-to-day and the emotional toll that it would take if you had to go back in, go look for another person and then rehire that person. I mean, you're talking years to just restart, get back to ground level in order to go hire that person and start all over again. Because the stakes are so high, we should be talking about how do we increase the probability that we integrate and make sure that the executive that we spent all that time and money hiring works out for the long run. That is exactly why we have Steve on the show today to talk about how his philosophy and business model of mentoring these executives to get them integrated into the company, the culture, the job fit, their roles are so important. 
And the stats back it up. 72% of CEOs claim onboarding is critical to retention long-term, yet only 47% of onboarding programs last more than a week. If you've been thinking about trying to take that plunge and hire a heavy hitter executive that's going to take your business to the next level, increase the value of your company, take you out of the day-to-day, and you want a high probability of succeeding long-term with that hire, you got to check out this episode. So without further ado, here is Steve Moss. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Steve, how are you? I'm terrific. Good to be with you, Ryan. Yeah, I'm super excited about this conversation we're about to have because I'll just kind of set the table a little bit, just kind of reiterate some of the things we're just chatting about, and then I'll let you get your uh, background in. We can dive right in. So sure. I was saying to you that you know, so many times the people that either go through our training and that are listening in and they, they, they're kind of bought into this, okay, I'm going to grow value with the end in mind. And then I'm going to build a plan with the financials. I got a strategic plan. And then there's this gap of like, okay, who, what team's going to implement this? Like, you know, to truly get rid of my anxiety or to make this business more manageable in my life, there's this executive team and I, that needs to be put into place and I need the rock stars. And there's so many different uh, technicals that we can dive into from, from that topic. But when I met you, your model and what you're doing is very interesting because of the challenges that come with hiring those kind of people and how to make it work and successful over time. So I'll just get, that's just kind of the groundwork that just how you and I started talking, but why don't you give everybody the background of you, your experience, and then how you started doing what you're doing today? Sure. Be happy to. So for um, much of my corporate career, I was a marketing executive in, um, in global organizations. So in 1995, I moved to Minnesota to join Pillsbury. And I had been with Pillsbury's parent company prior to that and worked at Pillsbury, was the head of marketing for Pillsbury International, ran Pillsbury's cake mix business, ran haagen for Pillsbury, Pillsbury formed a joint venture with Nestle in the ice cream business. I became the chief marketing officer of that. I had the um, the pleasure of commuting from Minnesota to California for about oh, two and a half years doing <laughs> that. <laughs> well, that's a story we can talk about at some point. And then I, I was later the, the chief marketing officer for Amation, a publicly traded company, um, which was a spinoff of 3M in the, um, in the digital storage media space. So where a lot of my career was in consumer goods, I then had this right turn into, into technology, if you will. In the middle of the recession, I was taking a look at the business we had at Amation. It was not in terrific shape. I wasn't really wired to manage a decline. And I put myself at the top of the furniture that was being burned and went off and, and started doing some consulting. And my consulting was in training, a marketing training, kind of basically taking the sales training approach for marketers. 
and also brand strategy and, and helping companies once they had developed the idea of, of what the relationship they wanted to have with their, with their customers was, how do they get that done internally? How do they use their sales force and their customer service and their tech support to be able to accomplish that? Well, everything I was doing had me standing up in front of a couple dozen people facilitating or training. My knees are over 60 years old. So if I can make a living sitting on my tail instead of standing up in front of people, I was happy to do that. And besides having a, a joy on building brands, uh, the other thing that's a passion for me has been helping people with their careers. So maybe it's because I'm decent at it. Maybe it's because I'm old, but the, I can count over 50 people who used to work for me who've gone on to be vice presidents or presidents of companies. Cool. So, so I thought about how I could do something there. And that led me to, um, to founding a business that's called Executive Springboard. And the notion behind it, uh, and I hope we'll have some time to, to dive into some of this, organizations basically have, when, um, when they have people in new roles, it's high risk. Senior executives who are joining companies, about 50% of them will fail in the first 18 months. And that costs companies a boatload of money when that happens. It's multiple times their salary. That, so companies are facing a high risk, and the costs of that risk are high at the same time. So I've spent a lot of effort understanding why executives fail in new roles and, um, and looking at, at steps that can be taken to address that. And the headline is, we've created a business that combines mentoring with onboarding to help executives excel in new roles. You just laid some awesome groundwork for us. So the, I want to unpack those two stats that you gave, because I think that, you know, I, I've, I've seen stats like that roll around, but none that are like, okay, you know, literally 50% of executives fail in the first year and it's one to two times salary. Where does that come, like, where, what's the failure reasoning and why is it so expensive when the failure happens? Well, let, let's, let me answer the, first que the second question first. Why, why is it so expensive? Let's start with the fact that you're, you're throwing away perhaps, you know, a salary for a year and, and benefits and everything else because that person doesn't last. So I'm going to include that as, as part of the cost, mm -hmm. right? The, the failed compensation. Then you have perhaps a search bringing somebody in the search for the next person afterwards, anything that's happened to the business. Think about people who may have may have left because of the, the disruption that was caused, et cetera. And you can see it's 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 more than two times salary. It's the hard costs are probably closer to three times salary when you add in even even a, um, you know a package as, as somebody leaves and then getting somebody, the next person up to speed. So it is multiple times salary that you're looking at, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe over a million dollars in cost from one, bad, um, from one bad hire. And it happens all the time. It's a coin flip, whether a lot of these, these folks are going to last or not. So as to why that happens, well, it depends a bit on who you ask. If you ask the executive who has flamed out, yeah, it's not their fault. Is it? Right. Well, what they'll tell you is they'll tell you there was something in the environment that maybe they didn't handle as well as they could. Right. Maybe it maybe it was the culture that was a little bit difficult for them. Maybe they maybe they weren't getting the um, the political air cover from their boss that they needed. It, it's it's lots of times it's something in that. If you ask the hiring manager, they'll blame it on the executive. It can't be their company. Right. It's got to be the executive. And the top things that that um, that have come up, um, Leadership IQ did a, a, a study on this, 
And they asked people, what was the number? What was their top reason why somebody didn't make it? At the top of the list was not being coachable. At the top of the list was an executive who just didn't listen to feedback or act on the feedback that they were given. Next up is emotional intelligence. Somebody understand um, how, how they themselves are thinking and how other people are thinking and act in ways that will, will address that. The third is motivation. Is somebody acting in a way that, that people see they are motivated and committed to getting better at what they do and excelling in their role and understanding their place in that company? Personality issues might be another thing. And, and I kind of think when a company talks about personality issues, that's probably the other side of the coin from the, that executive saying that there are cultural issues. Mm-hmm. Maybe their personality just didn't fit into that culture. Yeah, really. it might not be a, a default it's just, or a defect. It's just a mismatch. Exactly. And, and then fifth, at only around 11% of, of the time being mentioned is functional competence being an issue. So generally people being hired, right? They're being hired to be, they, they're people being brought in who can do the job. It's people issues that are getting them, you know, like 90% plus of the time. Mm. And, that's, and that's really the thing that in, in our business, we're spending a whole lot of time trying to get them to think through, starting from the standpoint of, you know, the job you're supposed to be doing, you understand the function that you, you've been placed in. How is it that you as a new leader with an agenda for change can get people to embrace that? So the big question is, how are you helping solve these problems? So when you recognize this, and I don't know, uh, Steve, along your career, like if these these were kind of intuitive to you, and then I'll, now you've got facts behind them, and you got data, and you're building the process. So like, how, what are the ways of addressing this? Well, yeah, so, so how do you come to this first? I guess um, some of it is data. Some of it is in the process that we have with mentors. It's people showing their scars, right? It's, it's having, um, having people who've lived through experiences, some of them that may where they succeeded, some of them where they may have failed. And honestly, the least painful way for people to learn is from somebody else's mistakes rather than their own. So, you know, what, what we try to do along the way is, is help people think through the goals they have to achieve, set up some some um, metrics and you know strategies along the way to how they're going to get to that, and we'll and the mentor will hold that that individual to that. But a lot of that, a lot of those goals that we're asking them to set up is how are you going to work and play well with other people? How is it that you can get alignment with others in the organization around the change that you're trying to bring? that's not an easy thing. And when, if you're new in a company, if, if you've just been hired from the outside, and it might be a little bit different if you've been promoted in or mm-hmm. um, reassigned. And there, there are some things that are different in, in that we, we handle those kinds of um, situations as well. But when you're coming in from the outside, almost nobody ever says to you, we want you to do exactly what your predecessor did. Right. Almost everybody is everybody comes in as a leader has something they're supposed to be doing to change. If you carry that mantle of change too too tightly, it's it's like you're it's it can be an excuse for bad behavior. But assuming people don't uh, aren't acting that way, when you're realizing that you're trying to do things maybe differently than any than have been done before, when you're new in an organization, you're the one person who doesn't know how anything gets done. You're at the mercy of everybody else in there to be able to buy into what you're trying to do 
and get them, you know, get them on board and helping you out to get things done. And so that's, you know, as much as anything, that's, that's why it's so important to be building those relationships up, down and across. So interesting. Cause like, I, this is so applicable in so many different ways, Steve, because I, I mean, I think about it from like, you know, I've had a ton of private equity firms on the show and you know, you, you got, or any kind of business buyer where they're going in there buying a business and we're just going to quickly do all these things and just rampage and, and change. And, it, and it's like, well, yeah, it's, everything's based in people at some point, <laughs> like you're going to have to get people. And, and even if the, the people listening are looking to hire a CEO or a next level executive right. bench, it's terrifying. Cause I went through this so many times, Steve, we're like, I mean, there was this one uh, individual that we hired and it was like, like there was this story that I was told she didn't fit at all. And I was told that if you put a drop of milk in a gallon of gasoline, nothing happens. But if you put a drop of gasoline in a gallon of milk, the whole thing sours. And the risk <laughs> is so enormous for an owner that, especially if you think about like, I've got a five-year plan and this is crucial right. and I need to bat this perfectly. Like, I need to hit the home run with this individual. I don't have 18 months and all that cost to get me to where my goal is. So this paralysis is there. How do you, how do you address that anxiety of even making this step first? Well, you know, there's a couple of things and I, I do have a, um, I have a bias that if the answer is inside an organization and somebody has um, succeeded in that culture, consider them first before you go outside, because um, think about a process where, um, Somebody is you're you're recruiting for a you know a top position, and lots of organizations may may not have this. They may it, it may be absolutely clear that they don't have that mm-hmm. that right person inside. But saying oh this person isn't ready yet, let's go outside. Let's think about what has to happen. You go outside. It might take you you know five six months to find that perfect person, and then there they need another six months before they get up to speed. So the right comparison may be, can this person inside be there in a year versus me going outside, taking the risk of somebody who's not a good cultural fit, et cetera. So I think that's one thing that, mm-hmm. that I, I would say, first of all, is, is take a look at the resources you have and, and can you get somebody there? Second thing where I, where I think a lot of organizations sometimes make mistakes, they have a sink or swim attitude towards these folks, right? Um, they're senior, they're big boys and girls, they should be able to figure it out. And, um, you know, so true that and it, it, it happens all the time. You know, people often are going to um, people will struggle early on. They need to get their footing. What worked in their last job might not work in the new environment. The problems they face might be different. The culture is different. The people they have to count on are different. They can only make change happen at the speed of acceptance. And so um, for my business, and this is kind of um, self-serving on my part, it sure helps to be able to say, recognize that even this very senior person is work in progress and it's lonely being at the top of an organization and they need help. They need somebody that they can have as a sounding board, somebody they can bounce things off of, somebody who's been there before and, and done that. In larger organizations, you know, m- maybe not, not entrepreneurial, um, but in larger organizations, that's very difficult to have insight. It may be the same thing entrepreneurial, I'm not sure, but what I would say is lots of organizations might have mentors 
uh, mentoring programs in place, even on an informal basis, people take it upon themselves to help more junior folks out. They're great. They're really important to develop people and to retain people. When you get senior enough in an organization, there's nobody to mentor you anymore because you won't make yourself vulnerable with somebody who can end up being the problem. Now, a founder who brings in somebody eventually as their replacement, that may be a good situation for a mentor-mentee relationship. Not always, not always, but that, that can be something that happens. But in any event, that's a far cry from sink or swim, you know? And, and those executives make a big mistake too by not allowing themselves to be coachable by feeling like it's a, it's showing weakness um, mm-hmm. to be asking for feedback or, you know, looking for help in places. Yeah. I think it's extremely applicable for any mid-sized company that's privately held because, you know, you got the, the business owners have got Vistage and EO and the CEO peer yep. groups, which I, I am absolutely a huge proponent of, but I also so think, I. It, yep. but there's also challenges where there's sometimes it's the blind leading the blind, because if someone hasn't been through a full cycle or they're, Again, there's always someone that should be at the next stage that's helping you coach yourself up. But like these executives, you know, the, the challenge is like you're going to go, you know, trying the same person that's paying your paycheck. You can't be too vulnerable with them because you were hired to kind of fix things or or make the change that you said. So explain the mentoring program and or your, your thoughts on mentorship. So like what is a good mentor and how does this work? in order to effectively use a mentor and being coachable? So I, I see kind of three paths for people in senior levels to have as confidants. Maybe there's more, but I, I see kind of these three paths. One is something, as you mentioned, like Vistage, peer circles, where people are working with, with somebody else who's kind of at their level, in a non-threatening situation mm-hmm. that's not competitive or something like that. And that can be great. I, I, I'm not going to knock any of these ways. So I think they all have terrific benefits. Yep, 100%. So, um, so something like a Vistage or an allied executives or something like that is, is great um, for, for um, a lot of folks. Executive coaches are another way that this gets done. And generally you have people who are certified as executive coaches who have a skill set Around um, around organizational development, leadership development, they they're you know they've gone through a certification process. They are great active listeners, and they can ask a lot of questions to help people get start sorting things out for themselves. Mentors bear a lot in common with coaches. One of the big differences between a mentor and a coach is a mentor generally has some shared experience in the field that, that you're working with. It may be, you know, that that mentor is in your company and, you know, you're, you're a, you know, an up and coming manager and you've got, you know, a, a vice president of the company as, as your mentors. That's terrific. When you're in that senior role and there is nobody internally who can mentor you, there's, you've, you've run out of top space there or it just becomes uncomfortable then it may be you find a mentor outside. And in that case, what we've done at Executive Springboard, we have vetted about 90 people as mentors and we cover about 20 different functional areas. And we've got people in about a dozen different countries. So an executive who is coming in um, into a new situation, whether they've been promoted, whether they've been relocated, reassigned, whatever, um, hired out outside, 
I'll match them with somebody who has sat in their functional chair and has experience that looks like theirs. So, okay, um, a new CIO is, is joining this organization. I'm going to match them with somebody who is or has been a chief information officer. Is this a privately held business? Is this a, a turnaround situation? Are they coming in from the outside versus inside? All those things are other boxes for me to check mm-hmm. so that that executive says, wow, I can see how this person can help me. And he's got credibility that, that comes with this. We can develop rapport right off the bat. And then from that, you know, they're speaking the same language. And, um, and even though I said that the functional competence isn't really an issue that, that gets in the way too much of, of people succeeding, uh, you know, that's not why too many people fail. It helps to have somebody who's been there, done that in the situation that you're facing. 100%. And so, yeah, and, and so that's, that's the kind of thing that we try to do. So while our people have a program that they're trying to take people through um, over the course of like, for us, onboarding lasts for eight months. And I'd, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how onboarding often works in companies. It doesn't normally go for that long, but over an eight month period, our um, mentor will be sitting with an executive for two sessions each of eight months. There's homework assignments, et cetera. So the executive's got a bunch of things that they're thinking about and can be talking about either as planned or as things come up and they just need to bounce something off of somebody who can be a sounding board for them. So, yeah, I do want to get to the onboarding and why it's successful and it fails a lot and how yeah. your eight month program is a little bit different. The, uh, the, going back to the mentoring though, Steve, I think what I find is super interesting is like, so when you and I chatted uh, prior to this podcast, I was talking about, I interviewed this gentleman, Joel, who was talking about how a CEO can hire the next level executives, even if you're not a functional expert on it. Right. And it was super intriguing because he said, well, it, the executives, the, their ability to see in the future and their degree of accuracy that they're predicting it is, is really the functional expertise that they have to have. But like you said, the failure on the personal side of the trust and the culture, culture mismatch, all these issues are the, the problem. And so many f- privately held founders they get to this point. Here's what I see. And this is, I, I was absolutely victim of doing this. Of Okay, I'm slammed. I'm stressed. I can't do this function anymore. Let's hire Robert Half, hire XYZ consulting company, a recruiting company, plop someone in, and they're just going to take all my headaches away immediately because I don't understand that function. Right. And if I hire this person for 150 grand that I'm, I'm paying myself, I don't have to train them. So this is why I'm paying 30 grand for the recruiting fee and hiring this person. And then you just assume, like you said, sink or swim. And, it, and it, there's this, like, when I realize why that fails, because you're, someone needs to be able to bridge the trust and then be able to have that individual, like that, 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 that executive saying, hey, here's where you're going and being able to, because the, the owner generally can't be that functional coach or mentor because they're the one that's full of all the complexities that the executive was hired to solve. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. And part of your job in, in that as that owner is firing yourself to get to get that stuff off of your plate to somebody else who can do it better than you can do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so like and so when I see like it's interesting and, and I think this is leading into the onboarding issues that you're talking about is that this is such a trust related issue. Right. Like we need to trust each other and be able to build the culture to integrate each other into the culture because that's where tr- trust is the glue behind all of this. And when the owner has these expectations that they might not be able to clearly articulate 
because they right. know they've got problems, but they don't know how to describe them because it might be finance or IT or sales. And they're going, I just know that these things should be solved. They're just assuming that the functional things are going to, you know, drop in the, like the, the solution is going to drop right away. So the trust is getting eroded on the functional side right off the bat when the people side hasn't been addressed yet. And so there's like the, am I making any sense or am I yeah, away? That, 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 I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, part of this also is in the, in the recruiting process, um, there's lots of things that can go wrong. And, um, and, and I mean, lots of times um, a company, when they don't do it too often, they don't know how to write, you know, position specs. They'll leave it up to the, the search firm. And that's probably the best thing they can do is leave it up to the search firm um, if, they, if they really don't have a whole lot of experience there. The other thing that I'd note is everybody's selling. Both sides are selling through the whole recruiting process, right? That executive selling, the company is selling. And at some point, you know, we've, we've, we put makeup on the blemishes and um, it becomes kind of important for, for people to be able to understand what's really there. So, um, so there aren't too many really uncomfortable surprises once, once somebody walks in the door. I, so I, tell, I, tell, I tell people when they're going for their final interview, have a 90-day plan written. It, oh, will awesome. be, it will be wrong. I guarantee you it will be wrong. But it allows the company to see that somebody is, is looking at their business that granularly and that they're putting themselves in the role. They don't know enough to get it right. And, um, and so having written that 90-day plan, first few weeks on the job, one of the things to be doing is take a look at that 90-day plan and figure out how much to keep and how much to, to pitch. Because a lot of it might have to get pitched when you see what the reality looks like. Well, what's interesting about that comment too, Steve, is that, you know, you're so right though. Everybody's selling and you're almost like everybody can almost brainwash themselves into this is going to work. Right. Right. And, and yeah. I, I've been victim of that many, many times myself in Arcona as well as in the, our previous business. And I think what's so interesting is one of the, one of the interview questions I now have is tell me a time when you have an idea that you brought to the table and they, people didn't like it or that how do you handle conflict? Because you're not in the interview process. Like the only time you're going to be able to see the true colors of someone is when they disagree with you <laughs> and you're not going to like adamantly disagree with someone in an interview process. Right. Yeah. That's, that, that's a, that's a tough thing to have happen. And, and people, when, when it comes to it, as, as important as, as culture is in all of this, right. Understanding kind of the rules of the road that, um, somebody has to follow, and it's you know it's going to be different from where they've been in the past, mm -hmm. right? We don't have a real good language for talking about it. It's really tough, you know, for somebody in an interview process, for instance, to say so. So tell me about your culture, and for you to give you know to give somebody an answer on that. So I normally I've I've got um, as part of our practice, I'll ask a series of questions. In almost like a lightning round, of, you know, to try to to try to get at it, you know, where does the power lie in this organization? How do people like to communicate? I mean, is this is this a meeting based thing or is this an email based thing? How how does that work? What does the how does the immune system get manifested? How do people handle bad news? You know, there's a bunch of things that, that I want to try to get at 
So people have a, a little bit of an understanding of, of what they're they're getting into. But but it's one of those things where language, you know, just talking about culture as, as kind of a thing, it's so darn squishy that <laughs> um, that it just makes it really hard for for this. But it's it's critical for people it, to be getting success it right. Or failure based on that yeah. culture. And I had this, I think it was that Joel that mentioned it because I asked him what his definition of culture was, and he said it's the, it's the little micro decisions that like ripple throughout your whole organization. He goes, are we a blue jean company or are we pinstripe suits? You know, like what happens if you're late to meetings and it's just all that yes. stuff that just, <laughs> it just manifests itself in so many yes. different ways that no matter what executive, they're not going to know all of those things until they get in there. So, so yeah, I I've heard it defined as how we do things here. And um, I've just moved from Minnesota to Maryland. And I haven't taken, uh, I, I imagine I'm going to have to take a, you know, get my, get a Maryland driver's license and uh, look at the, the driver's manual and all of that stuff for the first time since God was a little girl. Right. <laughs> and, and, and in that, and so in that process, I realized that there's, there is a new tune that I have to dance to. And that's and that's part of what this is about, you know, what's what's underlying a lot of the things that, that has to happen. And people are going to dive right into the business issues as they should. But understanding that 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 context is just critical through all of this and and getting getting the relationships right, you know, with the peers, with um, with the boss, with the person who works for you, who thought they should get the job right? Who's passed over right. and pissed off. I mean, getting all those things straight, um, there's a lot on the plate, um, you know, en enough for my, my mentors to stay busy with people over an eight month period for sure. So I want to get into the onboarding and yeah. before we get into the specifics of it, like you mentioned eight months and when we had our prep call, it was super funny because we, you, you had said that it was 12 months and now it's eight. And you and I were talking about, I mean, it's truly like after eight months, you have this like trust that it, it, what was it? It was a book that I'd read. It was like, it takes about eight months to build a relationship with someone. You can't expedite that too much more because there's just levels of trust that have to be built in. But so what does a normal onboarding process look like in your decades of experience and why is your process different and what, what problems are, is it solving? So, so, um, research and i think i think i've seen this research from vistage that that put like that claimed about how that it was critical onboarding by itself was critical and about you know about 75% of business owners were saying they saw it as a critical component to retention oh wow that's a right? lot yeah it was it was a high number and about 75% or higher had um, onboarding as something that they do and then the next question is and how long does your onboarding last and 53% answered a week or shorter. So now I will tell you that in a week, you've got something done that's different than onboarding. It's compliance. It's I was going to say, yeah, payroll sign up. And <laughs> that's about it. You know, it's like, okay, um, this person is here. This person is there. Here's your laptop. Go at it, right? So um, you're right, Ryan. When, when we started... We didn't know. We set something up at 12 months. We we gave companies, we gave clients an opt-out after six. So stick with us for six. If you feel like it's done or this is a waste of your time or something like that, let's let's part ways there. We had people who kept signing up. But what was happening was by month 11, 
the mentor and the mentee were just kind of like looking at each other like, so this is done, isn't it? <laughs> so, so we, we good, kinda, Steve. We good. Yeah, we realized we realized we overshot. And then so the thought was, okay, do I cut it off at six months? No, because what we saw was even at six months, there were some uglies that had a habit of still bubbling up to the surface hmm. that weren't quite um, recognized there. And Ryan, I got to tell you, I saw this in my in my um, my last corporate gig myself. I lasted a little bit over 18 months. And about six months after I left, when I could now reflect on a bunch of things, there were situations that had come up. One of the, the general managers, um, somebody who was responsible for um, a, a region of the world, um, had all sorts of criticisms of one of my people who was located in his market. But instead of giving me the criticism, it went to my boss, the CEO. And it took me like six months to realize, you know, kind of what were the politics that were going on there, right? <laughs> and yeah, because I had other things. Wait, wait a were, second, what's going on? <laughs> and so, okay, in that respect, it took me two years to, to, feel, uh, to figure some of that stuff out. But what we've seen is after an eight-month process, people feel like they're in their groove. They've established the relationships, as you said, that are really that critical with um, with either the people who are working for them, or maybe even more importantly, with their with their colleagues, their peers who they, they're working with cross functionally or across business units or whatever, to establish that. Because what's more important than um, than getting somebody to nail it in the first ninety days is to be able to, um, for somebody to still be there two, three, ten years later. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what's more important. So um, if um, while we we certainly believe in our process, it probably accelerates people's impact. What is more important and what is what is what is a key measure of success for us is how people are. You know, can that be sustained long term? Well, which in yeah. the stakes are so freaking high when you're trying to figure out like how to hire this CEO or executive team to make your ESOP or private equity sale or family transition work. Like, I mean, you, the, the stakes are so high that you don't yes. want to, in like, in the, in, in, in the light of like a transaction like that too, Steve, the freaking politics, because everybody sees potential money grab going on. So like the ability to make that work long-term is way more important than someone rocking a sales plan 90 days in, or, you know, building the budget. And uh, I mean, like you having that, that alignment long-term is so important. How, how do the mentor and, and uh, executive relationships help surface those issues and how do they process them to make sure that, 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 that dance, right? Cause you're like, you're probably trying to like two people that come together, it takes a while to get in sync and that's that eight month period. And so I'm assuming, how are you dealing with those, those clunky periods and how does the mentorship work like that? So um, one of the things that's really critical is for the um, for the, that executive, the mentee, to realize how confidential this relationship is. Hmm. So so the mentor is is um, is making it really clear early on they have no contact with the employer. Nothing is going back. There's no feedback loop that we have. The employer we recognize that the company has every right to understand what kind of return they're getting on their investment. The way that happens in the process we use is we'll conduct a one-person survey monkey survey at various times during that 
during the engagement. So month three, month six, a valedictory thing, month eight, we'll have people talk about what they were getting out of this, how this is working, where 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 room for improvement. So along the way, I'm conducting that with with the um, with the executive. I'll give the feedback to that, which this is now the executive reporting on how they're seeing everything going. I'll give their feedback to the company. I'll also give it to the mentor so the mentor can make any course corrections they have to make. But the mentor is having no conversations at all with the company. And that's that's being done because if we can make this um, confidential and if the mentor early on is opening up about their own experiences, what has what worked for them in the past and more importantly, what didn't work for them, it allows that executive to make themselves vulnerable. And that vulnerability is kind of at the at the, the core of all of that. That's why you don't have mentors internally, because people won't make themselves vulnerable with the boss with a colleague who someday could be their problem, et cetera. So rather, you know, this is something where, where somebody realizes I've been given the gift. The company is giving me the tools to succeed. This is, um, and, and it's kind of important in this process for, um, and one of the reasons why we went with a model that was just a little bit different from coaching. I think lots of times coaches unfairly get, um, have a stigma that the work is being remedial. Like if, if you said to me, hey, Steve, I want to give you an executive coach. I've got a thought bubble of what did I do wrong, right? And, and that's unfortunate because lots of times people think that coaches are a step in part of the due process before somebody is exited. And we wanted that, we wanted to get as far away from that as we can. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is somebody who someone can confide in they're going to hold their feet to the fire on what it is that they put in their in their 90-day plan. You know, what is it that that and the, that 90-day plan is not necessarily all business objectives. It may very well be relationship building at, at its core, mm-hmm. right? But um you you got to have somebody who's going to hold you accountable and at the same time um be somebody who they can open up to. And that's what we're that's what we're trying to do in this. Yeah, you know, that's a couple examples of what vulnerable conversations are happening like that what like what would be examples of the mentor and the mentee and these conversations where you like they get done and go that that was progress yeah so um you know where this might happen is um when somebody starts getting to the point where where um they admit they don't know all the answers right and um and are showing anxieties about some of the things that they're facing and that they've got a, a mentor who is supportive enough to be able to say, yep, uh, let me, um, I face something like this and here's how I learned from this. Cause maybe I made this mistake. Right. And, and in that process of being able to open up and share a bit of your, of, of yourself, and maybe it's even maybe it's not just talking about what happened at work. It might be saying, "Hey, you know, this kind of stuff spilled over into my into my personal thing." So here here might be an, here's an example. This this happens um, with some frequency. Somebody is hired, and you know they the the job is is in Milwaukee, but the the person was hired from Dallas, and they're not moving their family from Dallas till Milwaukee till the end of the school year. 
there are people in the in the the company who are scratching their heads and say they don't think they had good schools here, right? Um, and, yeah, right. Um, and 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 why why can't they why can't they? And this is more the before time, you know, pre COVID when when people were everybody was like in one place. But um, there there are so many things that that can go wrong in a long distance commute. Just as an example, and having somebody who's didn't who's done that before. Who can say, hey, hey, Ryan, you know what? If, if you're going to be doing this and you're spending your um, your weeknights away from home, in, instead of watching, you know, being able to tell what Law and Order episode it is in the first five seconds, why don't you join the the Chamber of Commerce where you are? Why don't you why don't you do these things in the community that get you LinkedIn? Because if you start doing that, if you're able to um, to do that, then that organization sees you as trying to fit in and belong, and that's a big that's a big piece in all of this. At the end of the day, after eight months, I'm hoping that somebody feels like they belong in the organization, that the organization sees them as fitting in, and they've done that without giving up who they are. They've done that with authenticity. Ooh, that's so good. Yeah, that's so good. I mean it. Yeah. And I, I can think of another example and I, and I don't know if this comes up with some frequency, but like, there's a lot of people that listen in or that are in our trainings that they want to bring in a interim CEO. When I say interim, it's not even interim. It's like the next generation of the family, or they want to build it to the point where the CEO might have some phantom stock or some equity or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then depending on the family or the partnerships or whatever, like, my God, that's just like setting up for the firing squad because of all the politics around it. And just having someone to be able to say, okay, I got the parents over here, I got the kids over here, I got the previous executives over here. How to do, how do I navigate this while also making change? Right? Yeah. Like, it, I can't even imagine how beneficial having a conversation with someone that's been through that just one bit of advice could make or break the entire relationship. Well, and, and we've seen that we we've had, um, we had something where, um, where somebody came in, they were a vice president of operations and this was a big company. And um, there had been a hope that maybe they could become the COO. It wasn't going to happen. The person really um, wasn't ready for that. And the CEO had made the decision to, to bring in a COO and um, had told this, this vice president of ops that she is now going to have somebody in between her and, and the CEO. And with the coaching of, of the mentor, the, this vice president of ops went into the CEO's office, closed the door. Now, she had a reputation of being rather, um, of being rather loud, and the CEO is getting uncomfortable with this. But she said, you know, if this is about me, then we're going to have a different conversation than what I'm expecting, but I know how that one will go too. But let me just assume for a minute that this is all about you trying to reduce the span of, of the number of reports you have. If that's the case, rather than um, demoting, in essence, the 500 people who work for me, can I suggest that this person, this person, and this person also report to the COO? Well, the CEO hears this and he's floored because he was expecting an emotional response. He got something that was really well thought out that mm. was that he hadn't even considered, and he took it on. So, you know, right there in that one conversation, we earned our pay. You know, right. and and that's and that's that's how these things often do happen. Yeah. 
What's well, so interesting, Steve? It, it, like, you know, I think about like when I had the family business and you just only know your own little sandbox, right? There's, there's this, there's no relativity. Like, so you, there's this constant, am I crazy? <laughs> and then whether it's the owner or the executives that are plopping in, you're constantly going, am I crazy? Cause you don't know everything else. But over the last eight years, you know, with, I, with being able to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies, you go, Oh, here are the themes you can extract. Oh, that's normal. So then you have like, it's just less, you have less anxiety around it. And I don't know how much of what you're doing is just purely helping people communicate, helping people mitigate the highs and lows of the emotions so they can actually focus on the functional stuff that they're trying to do. If that is a lot of it. And, you know, the communication piece is critical and the communication piece comes in a bunch of different ways. Who are you talking to? Right. Can you identify who those key opinion leaders are in your organization? And some of them might be on a, some of them might be, you know, on the org chart and really obvious. There might be others who in a, in like a, an all employees meeting, they, they cross their arms and roll their eyes and half of the audience goes away. Right. And, and they may not be where you expect them on an org chart. So understanding who some of these people are, figuring out the what's in it for me and building, you know, building the case, doing the, doing the pre-sell on people in the organization can be a really important thing. A, a thought, and we, we talked a little bit about this on, on um, just what's involved in all the change, and particularly when somebody's coming in at the top. I had an executive coach tell me that her practice was in managing grief. And I said, so how do you define grief? And she said, it's the conflicting emotions that come as a result of somebody changing their familiar patterns of behavior. And it stopped me for a minute because there was nothing in it about loss necessarily. It was about change. And, and she said to me, so, you know, the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief? Yeah. Okay. Well, that started off as the Kubler-Ross change curve. And if you think about people mm. managing change as really managing other people's grief, that's a pretty powerful thing, you know, for, for, for people to be able to say, you know what, uh, this, this person is, um, I, I'm going to treat them a little bit differently when they're in denial than when they're bargaining. And, um, and it, becomes the, it becomes really an important way to try to think about how it is you get alignment at various stages. So, yeah, that, that's, part of, that's part of that communication thing and helping people come up with strategies that maybe they wouldn't have thought of on their own. That's awesome. That's super valuable. What would you say that like if someone's listening in and they've got an executive and they before maybe tuning into this they had the sink or swim mentality because it's very normal what is their point of no return or what is the point of leaning in and saying hey let's give this person a try and and what is the issue or i'd say that's the main question because i just know that like a lot of some people wait too long to fire people and then others fire people too fast all within that sink or swim so how do you if you're trying to recalibrate and say, can we resurrect this relationship? How do you view situations like that? Yeah, you know, I, I think more often than not, people give up too soon. So I, I'm, you know, forgive me if I don't give you like a, a month when it happens, because I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I know my three and a half. Is, no, right? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I, I do think I do think there's something um, there seems to be something that's magic about the first 90 days. I believe that that companies drive to a judgment on whether somebody will make it or not based on maybe tactical wins that they have 
early on. And by 90 days, they think they've got it figured out whether somebody is going to make it or not. I don't think the executive has it figured out whether they're going to make it or not Mm. for quite a bit longer than that. And I think lots of times it's good counsel for somebody to be um, to be quieter, to use the two ears versus the one mouth, right? And be on a listening tour early on before going out and making decrees in, in your new role. And if that cause if, if that takes some time and if if the organization is saying, boy, she's rather passive, you know, is this is this what we have? We'll have that conversation and try to and try to figure out if if that's kind of the an intentional strategy that that she's um, providing, because I, I do think way too often we're we're jumping to a conclusion a little bit earlier than we have without seeing that somebody has a pro, has a process in mind, or even that it's just taking them a little bit longer than other you know than than perhaps that owner would have expected to to get to grab hold of. But it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Do you think that there's um, certain, like a certain example or certain uh, behaviors that, like, once someone does it, you can kind of say that's indicative of everything? And let me give you an example, Steve. Is like I just Mm. like there's always like these stories where I'm like in previous business partners that I've had or executives where I'm like after it all didn't work out, I'm like. God damn it. If I would have just listened to that one story that they told me, it's just like everything <laughs> came from that. We're like, they, they like, I'm thinking about this one example years ago for me that this one gentleman refused to go into the cigar bar to sign this agreement because he didn't like smoking cigars and like, was just like, just stomping his feet and like refused, refused, refused. And it's like it, that, that rigidness was just translated into every behavior that they had. That's a great point. And yeah. I don't know if there's something where like, even though you're doing this whole, like in the hopes of making it work long-term, but then there's those one things where if you go that right there, if I listen, it's indicative of everything else. I mean, do you spot those very often or? I, I don't know that, that um, if they have, there, there's something that I think happens more on, on hindsight than it does like in the moment <laughs> to say, oh, okay, I see this one. I wonder if that's, if that's going to happen, but I, I do think, and one of the things that we try to coach, if, if I think about, about leadership, Kevin Cashman, from um, who's at Corn Ferry, had a definition of leadership of um, authentic self-expression that adds value. got his book right back there. Okay. I love right. that. I love that guy. So, so, so Kevin, thinking about this authentic, authentic self-expression, to me, it's like when you catch somebody in an authentic moment, is that something that, that, um, that works with with who your or what your organization is. Oh, that's good. Because that might be that might be the tell, right? Um, that person not going into the cigar bar. Well, if you're in the if you're in the cigar business, that would be a very yeah, problem. Right? But but um to your point about, you know, am I sniffing that there's a rigidity here that that is an issue? Um that's that's really something to, to keep in mind. Yeah. Super interesting that you and I like how you pointed out that authentic moment. And you know what's interesting is being in sales almost my whole life is mm-hmm. your goal is always to get someone where they're vulnerable and they can be authentic and then you actually find those stories. So it's how fast can you get there? And I and I was I don't know if I was on the podcast or whatever, but someone said to me, actually yeah, it was it was uh, JT uh, John Thielen. I don't know if you know him here in town. Um, anyways, oh. he he was a. Uh, anyways, I digress. The uh, the point is it was 
spend, you know, instead of these 90 day, 90 minute interviews, he, he was the, the COO of a company that was hired. And he talked about his experience growing and selling the company. And he said, the goal was he spent like six hours in multiple times with the owner. Cause he goes, you can't fake it for more than two hours. Right. Yes. <laughs> so someone's yeah. going to slip up and you're going to hear that story. That's going to expose their authenticity and their real self. And I was like, that's interesting. So Ryan, I, I got to say when, when we, when we started our practice, we tried to have our sessions 90 minutes long, basically because I didn't think an executive or anybody for that matter could hold their breath that long, right? <laughs> Something good's got to come out if you're talking to them that long. Well, you know what? Um, it was it was one of the it was one of the the compromises that I made was to keep it 60 minutes because unfortunately that's how calendars work. So ra- rather than having people say, nah, can't do it. We said, okay, let bag it. We're, we're going to do it for 60 minutes and hope we still get good stuff out of it. And so if we're probing enough, if we're asking the good questions and, and, and people um, buy into what we're trying to do and realize this is, this is all about, um, you know, our success is, be- is built on their success and that somebody is making an investment in them and in the company to make this work, you know, then, then good stuff normally happens. Yeah, you got to get to the point of like, does this work or not work as fast yeah. as possible? Get yeah. to what's it get to know as soon as possible so that way you can find the next yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Steve, this has been a lot of fun. I know we're rounding up to the end here. This has been a an absolute blast. Um, so I got two questions that I that I wrap up with. Uh, the first one is I like to ask people what the word intentional means because the name of the show and it's a lot of uh, the philosophies ingrained into our world and in what we're all about. What does it? What does the, the word intentional mean to you? You know, I I, I think it's it's about having um, having a goal in mind, um, and um, and not just um, not stumbling along. So you know whether it's um, whether it's building the value of your organization, whether it's 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 getting to a point where an executive feels like they have um, they have they're making the contribution that they should be making in the organization, whatever that is, it's, it's have that, those objectives in mind and be working towards that. If people want to find you, your organization, what you're doing, what's the best place to, to find you? Yeah. So um, our, our website is execspringboard.com, E-X-E-C springboard.com. That'll um, all sorts of good information there on um on our mentoring program and and how we are helping people, whether it's in onboarding, whether it's in development, whether it's in diversity and inclusion. So all there for you. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve. And if there's one takeaway I want you to walk away with is that if you're going to spend all the time finding or recruiting and hiring an executive that is going to be a huge deal for you for cost purposes, for just the emotional, cultural impact of integrating someone that has that kind of power and influence in your organization, make sure you're going to spend the same and adequate amount of time 
integrating that person into your company so that way the company and that person have the highest probability of success. Don't just log them into payroll and say, I hope you sell more stuff or go you know, increase their operations or finances without spending the time to make sure that they have the necessary, the necessary tangible and intangible resources to succeed long-term because you have just as much of a desire for them to succeed as they do. And you want to make sure that you've laid the groundwork so that way you can get you closer to your goals and that progress that you desire. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.